So we would we would um, pick up from verse seven of Ephesians chapter one. We stopped at verses six um, last week, and we were pretty much examining the the economy of grace that is in the Father and the things that the Father has secured for the accomplishing of His purpose. So we saw that there was a divine purpose that God prepared in himself before time began and the reason you and I are here today is because when he prepared that purpose he included us he chose us if you like before time began but we did try to understand how you know the fact that we are chosen doesn't completely absorb us of 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 the need to exercise our will because we see that he he he, he chose us onto a certain purpose that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So even though I'm chosen, the question that remains open is whether my life would fulfill the purpose for which I was chosen. And then the, the, the few, if you like, that God makes available to ensure that my life moves in this direction is called his grace. And so when God accepts us in salvation into the company of himself, into the company of the beloved, he dispenses grace so that the grace of God becomes the answer to every weakness that is implanted in our humanity, that is implanted in our background, in our circumstances that's, that would have disqualified us or prevented us from, from actualizing the purpose that he had in mind for us. His grace is the joker, essentially, that he releases. So this is an entire economy that is in the heavenlies, grace. Um, and that's where we stopped. And today we will continue from verse 7 um, of Ephesians chapter 1. Would someone volunteer to read for us today? Okay, I can read. Okay. Thank you, Golda. Okay, so we'll, we'll just continue from verse 7 to verse 10. Okay. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in himself, as in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Yeah, thank you, Golda. So in him there, you, you from the previous verses, we have seen that in him, perhaps in this entire book refers to in Christ, right? And we understand that the, that the riches that, that God has bestowed us with are not only in the heavenly dimension or in the spiritual realm or in the heavenlies, but they are located, they're domiciled in Christ. And Paul now begins to expand on what he means by the grace of God, like some of the benefits that grace brings to us. Then he says that we have redemption through his blood, right? So we have been redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. How do you understand the word redemption? I guess both from um, a literal perspective and also a theological perspective. What does it mean that we have been redeemed? Because that's a very Christianist term, right? But how do you understand this? In him, we have redemption through his blood. 
okay uh, for me i think like we've been saved like as a claim to us because of that fact can you take that again sorry it was quite fast okay i said like um we've been saved like redemption like we've been saved through him like he has a claim to us through his blood okay but do you think that re that redemption and salvation itself has exactly this, those words have exactly the same meaning well, I think redemption is, when I say it's deeper. Okay. In some way. Mm hmm Yeah. Thank you, Gola. Any other thoughts? So, when you write freedom, sort of, okay? And Terence writes deliverance from sin. Okay. So how did you get all these definitions? For example, deliverance from sin, right? I was mostly asking for the meaning of redemption. So if you say it's deliverance from sin, do you have something to back it up? Um, how did you come to, because we speak about redemption and then you bring in some other words in there, deliverance and then sin. Terence, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, so um, I'm looking at it from the, this part of we being sinners, as the Bible said, for all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And then once we are redeemed by Christ, we are delivered from that sin. So that was the angle I was looking at. I was looking at more of redemption being delivered, like to, to deliver. And then I added sin to it because, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's, that's definitely correct in its own sense. The main thing I want to point out about, about the word redemption is that it has the idea of a transaction. And that's why, um, that's why there is a qualifier after redemption through his blood, right? So if, if something is redeemed, it means it was bought back. There is a, a, a sort of transaction. What that means is that at some point, you and I and everyone born into this world is sold to to Satan and not just to Satan, but also to the slavery of sin. And what that means is that um, Satan has the free course to manipulate our lives, right? In the direction that he wants. He also has perhaps the right to bring in things like guilt and condemnation into our lives. But in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So we have a legal position that we have been purchased we have been bought back through his blood it's very necessary that we realize that our redemption was through his blood it was a legal transaction right and um, it satisfied god's conscience it's important for us to always remember that that even though salvation is free it wasn't cheap right and um, we could not have been redeemed apart from the cross the cross was a necessary pathway to redemption because there was a transaction involved. If we understand the implication of this thought, we will be able to stand our ground to resist, this, to resist the enemy when he comes with pictures. I don't know if you understand what I mean by pictures. But essentially, when it comes to pictures of the past, for example, pictures of your failures, and then he begins to torment you with them, or he begins to attempt to shape your future, right? With, with those pictures of the past. And that's a severe legal trespass in the spirit because 
we have redemption. So it's not just that God pitied us and then pulled us out of the pit. It's that he paid a legal price that completely sets us free. Um, that completely set us free from the legal bondages that Satan had over us. And another way to understand redemption through his blood is the forgiveness of sins, right? According to the riches of his grace. As you read Ephesians, you're going to um, discover different tributaries of God's riches. So the first tributary is the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace are not anything that we can work for. They are not anything that we deserve. They are a product of his, of his abundant mercy. And we, we come into the riches of his grace because of who he is, you know. But you're going to read further down the line um, about the riches of his glory, for example. And then you, you, you will see the demands for, those level, for that level of, of, of richness in Christ. But the riches of his grace, which is exemplified in the forgiveness of sins, um, is available to everyone because of the kindness of God. Verse 8 says, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, right, or knowledge, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he proposed in us. So not only did Jesus redeem us, not only do we have redemption in Christ, in Christ, we have a glimpse of God's idea, God's initial plan. You see, in our world today, the atheists will tell you that there is no God, whatever you say, right? And they have different arguments to, to prove. First of all, they said that there's no evidence for God because there's no scientific empirical evidence that they can point to, um, to say, okay, this evidence is, gives us a conclusive proof that there is God. But then you also have the, the agnostics who believe that, well, there might be a God, but we cannot know him, you know? And somehow all of humanity is stuck somewhere between these two. You know, either we kind of look at the, look around the world a second time and say, you know what, there has to be no God. He cannot, um, he cannot be this incompetent, essentially, if he, if he existed. Or we look around and say, you know, there's enough evidence that, that there's God, but I don't think we really know him, you know? Um, we we probably need to, I don't know, engage in deep personal transcendental meditation to maybe find him out. But Paul is saying that in Christ, not only did we do we have redemption, our redemption is not in limbo. In Christ, we see a glimpse of the reason for redemption, of the of the plan, the initiative, the idea that God had in His heart from the foundation of the world. And if I may ask us, right, what is what is the mystery of his will? At least from the verses that we've looked at so far, the verses that we've studied so far, what would you say is the mystery of his will? Because Paul says that we know it. So it means that if he's saying that we know it, then he, he, it's likely that in the verses that we've already read, he has given a hint or a glimpse at what it is. Why were you saved? Why did, why did God pay such a costly price for you? Why did the lamb offer himself? Um, why, why did God not, you know, pay attention to the plea of Jesus to let the cup pass over him in Gethsemane, even though it was painful and it was costly? Why did he proceed with the sacrifice? What, what, what hope did he have in his mind, in his heart? What, what idea 
did God have? Because this is like the center point of the entire letter in a sense, because if you pick it up from here, it will be possible for you to understand the masterpiece that Paul is, we is weaving throughout the letter as we go forward. What is the mystery of his will? Okay, only write that we will be holy, we will be holy and with him in love. Okay, but can you put it together? If you were to paint the big picture, why does God want us to be holy and before him in love? You know, you're quoting verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, right? What was he after? And Paul is saying that in Christ, the mystery has been revealed, the mystery of the will of God. Okay. Well, while we brood upon that, I just want to give us some pointers, not the direct answer, but some pointers that might help us. If you look at this entire letter, Paul is, is, is referring in the plural in this letter, God who has blessed us in verse three. So it's as if whatever plan it is that God had exists in a corporate context. And anything that he does with the individual is, is because of that corporate context. So that big plan of God is a corporate plan for a corporate people, right? So that's why you see in verse four also that he chose us. And we here is also um, plural more than two people having predestined us to the adoption of sons, to the praise and glory of his grace, right? Um, Paul says, we have redemption through his blood. Um, the riches of his grace have abounded towards us in all wisdom. So I think the point is a bit clear, which is that that purpose is for a people, right? God, God wants a people for himself. And why does God want a people? What, what is it about Christ that reveals to us um, what God is seeking in a people. If we read what you call um, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, you'll, you'll see that the prayer begins with our Father. So even Jesus's orientation of prayer was in a corporate context. He's, he's praying from the highest possible standpoint that you can pray from, from the highest possible vista. And in that vista of assessment, the individual believer is precious, but what God is seeking is a sort of corporate entity, right? And then when you, when you begin to um, examine the burden of the prayer, you now see what matters most to God. He says, our father is in heaven. That is his home. He has made it for himself. And we know what in heaven means from last week. And then he says, hallowed be your name. So everything is, is good and fine in, in heaven. But then he begins to share the burden. He says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. So that gives us a glimpse into the fact that, you know, God is seeking sort of a home that mirrors the heavens upon the face of the earth. And that home is not possible without a people. And it needs to be a certain kind of people. A people who love him with their free will, you know, but has also sold out to his own will. And that is why Christ is the perfect example of that body. Whether or not God is going to have a home on the face of the earth, it's not about how powerful God is. It's about his people, his people. And 
what Paul is inviting the Ephesians to see throughout this letter and throughout the verses that we're going to read, he's, he's inviting them to see that big picture. Because in chapter two, he starts talking about the Jews and the Gentiles all over again, trying to show that God even included people from a multiplicity of races and ethnicities in this singular plan. God is seeking for a people. As powerful as your prayer life is, there is so much God cannot achieve with that prayer life. So much he cannot achieve with that prayer life. But the moment two or three begin to call upon the name of the Lord, a, a quorum that has significance in the heavens begins to form. You know, and, and we're going to see subsequently that over the history of the church, there have been very sharp divisions, you know, starting from Jewish Gentile divisions to more classical um, denominational divisions. And one thing you notice is that throughout the history of all of those breakups and fights, God has not necessarily been interested in taking sides, you know, in supporting X or Y, because he doesn't prefer any of the split versions of that expression. The only thing that will satisfy his good pleasure is, is, is the unity of faith and of purpose. In fact, we're going to see in chapter four that he gave gifts unto men just so that this purpose can be accomplished, you know? Um, and so the context for these riches are in a corporate context. One of the ways you can divide up the book of Ephesians, right? We looked at, we looked at one way last week, which is that the book naturally divides into two parts. The first three parts talks about the riches God has made available, the position he has given us in the heavens, and the second part talks about the practical realities that we have to contend with in order to um, participate fully in those riches. But another way that you can correctly divide this book is that each chapter of the book focuses on a unique identity that the church has because the book is trying to show the masterpiece that the church is, that this is God's idea, right? Chapter one, we see the church as the body of Christ. Chapter two, we see the church as a temple of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit where God intends to dwell. Essentially, if the earth is going to know God, it's going to be through that corporate expression. And it says he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, and which are on earth in him. So I think that I have explained this already, this verse 10, with what I just said. But you see that Paul is, Paul is casting his mind to things that are in the heavens and in the earth. It's very important. A lot of things we're going to read in this letter are not natural things. Paul did not um, go to seminary or theological school to understand what he's writing. In fact, he hints us in the book of Corinthians that he knows a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heavens. And when you read this letter, and when you read the letter to the Colossians, you begin to understand that this is the revelation that he saw. You can, it, the only way you can write this kind of letter is if you were there and you saw it. So for example, there is a church in the heavens. It's called the church of the firstborn. And that church is enjoying the unity and the purity of faith that God desires for the church and the reason we have a church on earth is because there is one in heaven and the church on earth is supposed to mirror that one in heaven and in the fullness of time god is going to unite those two entities 
you know, together. So Christ becomes the center point. It's when it's when Christ is formed fully in the heart of everyone that is upon the face of the earth that that prayer can be answered fully, that your kingdom come. That's when God can leave heaven and rest upon the earth and he won't even know that he changed location. That's when the earth can be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. You know, that is the mystery of Israel. That's the, that's the desire that God has, that he can find a people, you know, in whom he can invest the resources of his son so much that he himself can find full pleasure in them. Okay. Before we read the next block of verses, do you have do you want to add to this? Any comments on this or questions, contributions? Very welcome. Okay, if I may. Mm -hmm. yeah, while you were talking, I got to um, look at a certain translation, and I think that's some good news. And it's interesting. The good news put it in an interesting fashion. It was talking about. Uh, a secret plan, as the mystery of his will there, the terminology there was referred to as a secret plan. Mm -hmm. In fact, read it where it says, says, God did what he had proposed and made known to us the secret plan he had already decided to complete by means of Christ. Mm -hmm. So um, looking at it from this angle, you will get to understand that in as much as interesting, it's a mystery because God refers to it as a secret plan, but then um, it's not obvious to the God of this world. It's not obvious to the system of this world. But however, it is something that has been, um, like, the, like was earlier mentioned in a verse, say predestined. It's something that has been preconceived and designed to come into manifestation. Uh, However, one thing I wanted to point out is, you know, the, also the mystery of it also, there is a mystery of it also at work in us, um, which is the part where it doesn't seem readily understood to the average saint, right? Um, mm. However, it, it gets to be understood when we come into the practice of that plan by faith. That is to say, we may not understand it from get-go, right? But in yielding to it, you know, in yielding to his will, with every step of the way, that mystery begins to unfold, not just in our knowledge, but also in our waking moments with every step we take, you know, day by day. I think that's what I kind of deduced from, you know, when you were explaining it and then looking at the scripture, you know, in line with what you pointed out, especially uh, from the Lord's Prayer, you know, the part where he said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So mm -hmm. that's my contribution. Yeah, thank you. Um, the word mystery is another word that occurs prominently in Paul's writings um, and also occurs a few times in this letter. Um, and sometimes we can fall into the trap of um, like 
making the word to to carry much more weight than it actually carries and paul is using mystery in the sense of something that was previously hidden like we could see its traces in in history if you read the old testament you could see that something was going on and that's why it was a mystery because even the prophets who were prophesying about the new covenant did not really understand its full implication they didn't understand the plan but the sense in which Paul now uses the word mystery is that it has been uncovered entirely. It has been made known to us. But your point is very valid that the fact that it has been uncovered doesn't mean that even we appreciate it as much as we do, right? It is only in the participation, in the fellowship of the mystery that we begin to understand it. You might not realize, for example, why, why your prayer life is kickstarted or, or energized by a prayer meeting you attend until you attend the meeting as long as you sit down in your house and you know keep struggling with your problem and keep analyzing if the meeting is of any value to you <laughs> the mystery cannot benefit you and you may not realize that god has made provision for this your season of, very perfect example of, perfect example <laughs> of, of of dryness as it were but it's, it's when you come into that atmosphere that you begin to experience the mystery in fact, as you and I are sitting here, <laughs> part of the working of the mystery is that you don't even know who's praying for you right now. That is, that is um, manipulating your circumstances so that it fits into God's plan. The only time you're going to realize that this was happening is the, the day God begins to put a practical burden on you and you begin to pray for somebody who has no clue and will never have a clue. And the person begins to experience breakthrough. In, in chapter three, Paul would expand more. In fact, in chapter three, the metaphor he uses for the church is that the church is a mystery to principalities and powers in particular, because as long as we operate within the context of a church, <laughs> Satan finds it incredibly difficult to break through that barricade. Where we are most vulnerable is when we operate as, as isolated people. The moment we begin to operate in the context of, of fellowship, in the context of a church, there is hardly any weak points that cannot be filled up by another in that context. Okay. Thank you, Sammy, for sharing those thoughts um, and sparking um, those extra thoughts as well. Any other thoughts or questions before we move on? If not, we can continue, Golda, from 11 to 14. Okay. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 214. Mm -hmm. Okay, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of, of his glory. Thank you. So he has told us that in Christ, we have received redemption, right? And in Christ, we have, we have received a revelation of the mystery of the will of God. And now he begins to, he points to the future and tells us that in Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance that there's an inheritance that we're predestined onto according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
um, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And I want to ask us, what is this inheritance that we have obtained, right? Um, how do you, in, in, the, in the light of everything we've read so far, how do you understand this inheritance? It says to you, Golda, that you have obtained an inheritance. And that is, you were predestined for this inheritance. You know, so what is it? Okay, I think um, part of it is the spiritual blessings and everything embedded in us that we can receive via Christ, redemption and all of that. Okay, but there is more specificity here, no? You're, you're, you're right that, in a sense, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings, right? The blessings are available to us to prosecute the purpose of God, which we have seen, right? And the blessings are that we were chosen in him. This is one of the blessings that he chose us in himself. Another of the blessings is that he adopted us, right, into himself. Another of the blessings is that he redeemed us. So we have, we have been chosen, we have adoption, we have redemption. But he's telling us that we have spiritual blessings. And in addition to that, we also, in him, we also have obtained an inheritance. Do you think it's specific? Yeah, I think God has like specific plans for each and every one of us. Okay. Like he has specific areas he probably wants to use us in too. So that mm. works in line with his will. That's his, um, to um, do his will. I think the mm. event that says that works in us to do his will. So I think specifically there are things he wants for us directly. Exactly, exactly. Um, um, Sammy, you wanted to say something? Oh, yeah. Um, that inheritance, if we are to put it in one word or one phrase uh, to encapsulate everything, from my perspective, I'll say everlasting life, mm. uh, which is embodied as delivered in Christ. Mm. Um, if we look at that um, verse from verse, um, from verse, sorry, from verse uh, seven, there are a lot of things listed there with comma, you know, redemption through his blood, comma, forgiveness of sins, uh, you know, making us abound in wisdom and prudence. You know, all those things are in commas, you know, it's like it's a long list. Mm -hmm. And then he comes all the way to verse 13 to now say, you know, add, the, um, the gospel of salvation, you know, then all these things listed all the way from verse seven, he says, it's like saying you, you, you cooked a food with so many ingredients and then said, and sealed it with the spirit of promise. Now that sealing of the spirit of promise is the guarantee of that inheritance, inheritance we are talking about now. And so if I'm to say, what is the spirit of promise a seal of? If I'm to now look at, if I'm to say I'm rephrasing your question down to the summary. So what is the inheritance that the spirit of promise is sealing? And from my understanding of it, I'll say is everlasting life, you know, in Christ. Exactly. Thank you so much for your, for your answer, right? So it's, both answers come together very nicely because it is definitely correct 
that we have received the, the, the inheritance of life. Right? The Bible says this is eternal life, that we can know him. This is like this is the core of the new covenant. The reason why God was so desperate for another covenant was that his intention was that each person can know him. And the only way to know God is to have his life, right? But then you can say, what is the proof that you have the life of God? But we'll come to that later. So this inheritance is the way. But the thing is that the outworking of this life in each person is supposed to produce a certain kind of identity, like um, Golda was pointing us towards, right? So in a sense, we know what this inheritance is. In a sense, we don't know what it is, right? Because as you walk with the Holy Spirit, as he walks his life through you, he's going to transform you into another man. He's going to transform you into something that you don't even recognize today. As you continue with the Spirit, as you continue in obedience, in your glorified form, you are going to become a certain kind of, of person. God is not making you any kind of person. Because when Paul or when Peter saw the vision of the church, he says, we all as lively stones. So God is not just making you any kind of person. He's making you a particular kind of person. You know, there is a sense in which we can sing and pray, oh, do whatever you want to do in my life and take whatever you want to take in my life, you know, make me whatever you want, right? There's a sense in which we can pray that in surrender. But there's also a sense in which we need to narrow down such prayers to make me that which you want me to be, not whatever, but make me that which you want me to be, right? We have obtained the inheritance of life. What is, what is Zoe? What is eternal life? Eternal life is that God is at work in me and he's producing virtues. We saw that in Philippians. And work out your own salvation because a sovereign activity has begun inside of you. The working of God in me is different from the working of God in you, even though at the substructure, it is the same life. And so there's an inheritance that we have obtained. This inheritance is different from adoption, right? It's different from the, from the inheritance of the, of the glorified body that we, that we have waiting for us, right? We have an inheritance that is a result of the inworking of God in us. So if you follow Jesus, if you continue with the spirit, <laughs> even you do not know what God can make out of you. The only thing you'll notice is that every circumstance in your life, if you submit it to Jesus and continue with him, is his, 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 ident his plan for you is to make you a certain kind of man, a certain kind of woman. Jesus said to Peter, <laughs> thou art called, um, what was his name before? What was his name before? That was called Simon, right? Simon, Simon, yeah. Simon. But you should no longer be called Simon. You'll be called Cephas. You see, there is a journey from Simon to Cephas because at that point, his behavior was very much like Simon, right? He was very shaky, driven around by, by circumstances. But his destiny in Christ was Cephas. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And it was the same Peter that began to tell us that all of us are lively stones. And in the building that God is, is, is in the building that God is putting up, we each have a unique position in that building. And that's what Paul wants his people to understand here, the Ephesians or his audience to understand. 
that we have obtained an inheritance. This inheritance was prepared for us. So just in case you begin to pray and you begin to break into certain things, there is a sense in which you broke into those things because you prayed. But there is also a sense in which you broke into those things because they were prepared for you. So you don't really know what God has prepared for you until you begin to pray. You know, some people use the doctrine of predestination to, to question the necessity of prayer. But anyone who understands predestination is supposed to labor more in prayer. Because I am not going to assume that my current life is the best that God predestined for me to, be, for me to become. Instead, when I look at Christ, like Paul says, I find every reason to press on in him. And like Sammy already hinted in verse 13 and 14, so we see that even though these people were predestined by God, it was still the gospel of salvation that brought them to the faith. So another excuse that um, can come up with the gospel of predestination is that you don't have to preach the gospel. If God determined that some people will be saved, then they're going to be saved at the end of the day. <laughs> but those people are not going to be saved if you do not preach the gospel. He says you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? What does it mean when he says you were sealed? How, how do you understand sealed? Because I can tell you one sense in which people understand it. One sense in which people understand it is that, is that a seal in, in this ancient time was indestructible, right? So it means that God gave you the Holy Spirit and he will never remove the Holy Spirit, even though you deny him, sort of. And so, you know, what it's leading to, it means once saved, forever saved, right? That's one sense in which people understand that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, right? Is that how you understand it? Or do you have another understanding of sealed here? What does it mean that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise? Okay, personally, I feel like a seal is like a confirmation, like an evidence. Like the seal shows that, okay, this is what happens after. Exactly. So being sealed with the Holy Spirit is like, okay, so now there's evidence to show forth that I'm actually there. Exactly. There is authenticity, you know. They, like, I, I, I rather interpret seal here in its more originality and authenticity context because that's exactly what's going on. If you understand the inheritance the inheritance is in, is in is invisible it's promised right how do we know that we have the inheritance today there is the seal of the spirit there is an authentic stamp that <laughs> this one has a place in heaven on our hearts right and he's the guarantee and the word guarantee here is a financial term that means the down payment you know if you want to if you want to acquire a house um, you have to keep a you have to give a down payment or like a deposit, a guarantee that over the next 20, 30 years or whatever number of years, you're going to purchase this house in full, right? That's your guarantee. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's a down payment of our inheritance. He's the, he's the initial investment of our inheritance. He's the starting point of our inheritance. You see, as, Paul, as we're going to see subsequently, packed in that inheritance that God has called us to is 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 the provision of power to perform its to, to actualize it essentially and it's saying that the holy spirit is the beginning point of power 
Meaning that if you have the Holy Spirit, that's the primary raw material that you need to generate all the power that you will need for your life. If you know how to relate with the Holy Spirit, if you know how to refine what he works inside of you, he's the beginning point, he's the down payment, he's the, he's the foundation, he's the starting point of the inheritance. From, from the Holy Spirit, you can go on into massive things in God. Whatever it is that you're touching God tomorrow, no matter how massive it is, its foundation is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. Okay. Any thoughts or questions before we move on? Yeah, just uh, just uh, it's amazing. I think my mind is blown right now. You know, it's amazing how I've been reading these things in the past, and like you said, now this has giving a true experience of that collective as a body. Mm. I'm just seeing this thing for the first time in this light, you know, guarantee. Some of the translations I'm looking at here are blowing my mind away. I am seeing first installments of our inheritance. <laughs> I am seeing, um, like you mentioned, down payment. I am seeing uh, deposits, you know, pledge. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just appreciate this. This is amazing. So just thought I should put this out there. Yeah. Just in case Satan comes to deceive you about your position in Christ, you just need to check the stamp and see if it's there. Check if the down payment is there. You just need to... You see, I was saying that God invites us into his life, right? And what is the proof of life? The proof of life is that there's a consciousness of life. You, If you talk to the Holy Spirit long enough... <laughs> you'll be flooded with the consciousness of his life. And then you know that you have been purchased, that there is a promise of your, of your purchase. Satan can masquerade around you so much, but if you return to the down payment, to the investment of God in you, that becomes the foundation of everything else, okay? You yeah, can... I, mm -hmm. I, wanted, I don't know if I should keep this till Q and A time or should I ask it now? You can ask now. Okay, now in the light of this understanding, mm -hmm. I'm trying to tie up two things together. Mm -hmm. One, we found that he is the seal, right? Mm -hmm. From the previous, uh, from the verse 13 we read. Mm -hmm. Now, this seal is the first payment. So now I am understanding that, let me use this analogy. You want to buy something, okay? And uh, a lot of people want to buy that thing. But for you to show that you are a more serious client, you now make an initial installment. You know, like we will say in our, in, in our local parlance, they say, oh, this one first. <laughs> Once the person has held on to that, the person now cannot reenact on, on um, the deal, right? Mm -hmm. So... It may be deviating a little, but I just want to see. Maybe you may answer it now, maybe maybe later or whichever. But the thing is this now. In this context of seal of the promise, uh, talking about the world safe, forever safe thing. Mm -hmm. In what context will one now say the seal is being abused? In this context of purchasing, you know, salvation, you know, salvation being purchased for our sake. I don't know if it's articulate enough. It's, my head is kind of 
I think it's it's the classic question, right, that this verse raises essentially, which is that if you interpret the seal as a permanence rather than authenticity, so if it's permanent, then who can destroy it? You know, if it's like in the olden days, the idea of seal here is that when the king seals a letter, for example, mm. it will be very obvious if it's destroyed before, mm. before it gets to the, to destination. the destination. But the seal was also, you can actually destroy the seal if you want, but the seal was actually more to authenticate that this came from a certain source. What I would say to that, because if you notice, we've been avoiding this question in most of our Bible studies in depth. We've kind of touched on it because the book of Hebrews gives us a more balanced perspective of this topic. So I'm waiting to get to it. And even the book of Matthew as well sees, has a more holistic picture of our salvation. Um, but the, a, a good way to understand what's going on here, the guarantee is that what you received is an engagement ring, right? Mm. Not the marriage itself. Um, and what God is hoping for in time is not that you will lose your salvation. It's not, it's not trying to test you and <laughs> make you fail enough so that you can change his mind about your salvation. Yeah. What God is hoping for is that you can mature sufficiently in time into the image of Christ. Because when we read for the Ephesians, he tells us that Christ is coming for a spotless church. You know? Um, so before the marriage occurs, God is molding you and shaping you, right? Mm -hmm. Into the kind of person that can fully appropriate the inheritance that he's calling you to appropriate. Now, this opens up questions around the afterlife, you know, and the world that is to come, because Paul hints at that world in this efficiency as well, the age that is to come. The age that is to come, like I've said before, it's not exactly a linear age, like we think it is mostly yeah. and i'm not going to expand too much on that but a lot of times we get the mindset that it is happy <laughs> ever after you know mm -hmm. just keep singing songs forever and ever um they're still ranking in that age for example mm -hmm. there are still people who have reward in that age there's there are people who are set over nations in that age there are people who are still disciples in that age there are people who still need to learn the tenets of the faith in that age. There's people who still even need to be tested in that age. You know, you're going to find all of this littered all over scripture. Um, so it's, it's, it's very important how one walks upon the face of the earth. You know, it's not, it's not enough to say that I have been saved, so what I do doesn't matter. That would have been correct if there was no age to come. But in the age to come, there is, re there is reward, right? There is also ranking. There is positioning. There's also calling. The Bible says that the gift of God, it doesn't repent. So it means that if God calls you to be an apostle, because the calling came from God is an eternal calling, meaning that in the age to come, there'll be apostolic assignments to carry out. Mm -hmm. in, the age to come, in the age to come, if God calls you to be an evangelist, an evangelist is not only somebody who preaches to unsaved people to be saved. An evangelist can be sent to saved people. Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 1 that I long to see you so I can preach the gospel to you. He told them that I've heard about your faith mm -hmm. and your love, but I'm really eager to see you so I can preach the gospel to you. Obviously, the gospel is preaching to them. 
is not the gospel of salvation, but it is still classified as the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an age to come, right? And so there is there is reward, and there's all of that in that age. Um, so what God does for us is that He gives us the engagement ring. Mm-hmm. He gives us the engagement ring. So the thing to understand, as in summary, about this whole topic is that the relationship we have with God is a two-way relationship. Even though God is the senior partner in the relationship, he can take 99 steps, but there's always that one step that we must take. What God does is that he invests grace sufficient so that if you even try a little, <laughs> you will make it because of grace. But Paul makes, us, makes it very clear in the New Testament that it's possible to receive the grace of God in vain. It's definitely possible for that to happen to a, to, to a believer, for example, that he received the grace of God in vain, right? Um, and we see warnings of them in the New Testament. So even though I have been given the engagement ring, if you like, in that arrangement, God is not going to change his mind, right? But I can definitely change my mind. mind yeah. yeah. So the question is what happens if I change my mind, you know? Um, yeah, I think we won't press it beyond that for now. Um, but yeah, that's more things to think about, I would say. Yeah, it's vivid so far. Okay. Cool. So, Goza, can you help us? Verse 15 to verse 19. Okay. Therefore, I also, after I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his heart toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Thank you. So now Paul begins to pray for them, right? So the question is, like we saw in Colossians, for example, when you meet believers who have it all, you know, he, I mean, look at what he's saying that we have. We have, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. You know, um, we have been shown the mystery of the will of God. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have the authentic, the authentic proof of the indwelling of God in our hearts. And we have the guarantee the down payment the initial investment of the spirit the 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 question that follows then is what next right and some people's what next is that hey we have all of these things now so let us maximize it as much as possible through greed for example or let us maximize it as much as possible through the flesh if god has made so much grace and blessings available we might as well do what we like. What Paul first of all acknowledges is that I heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints. Just in case you want to understand that, you want to check the proof of your faith, of your believing, there needs to be a vertical aspect to your believing, which is faith in the Lord, which most of us have, or all of us have faith in the Lord. But there also needs to be a horizontal dimension of your believing. The proof of your believing is that there is faith towards God 
and there's love for all the saints. So the, the matter of love and mercy for all saints is never trivialized in the New Testament. No amount of holiness and no amount of holier than thou excuses the importance of love for all the saints. And he says, I, don't, I do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, Paul unveils the curtain and begins to show us the content of his prayer life, especially as he regards the churches he planted. It's important to take a step back and realize that the person who's writing this letter is in prison at the time he's writing this letter. And so if you pause and think from that perspective, <laughs> what should be his, his prayer point, you know, as somebody in prison, for example? And if you also pause to look at it from another perspective, he's praying for the church. He, he's probably not going to see them again. He's writing to them. This is the only chance to speak to them. If he was your average pastor, Nigerian or African or European pastor of today, <laughs> what will be the content of that prayer? If, you, if it were you even, what would be the content of that prayer? I can already tell you what it would be for me. It would mostly focus on material things because those needs appear more practical. You know, if I pray for you, I'm praying for you that, you know, God will settle you in your marriage and he will settle you in your career. You know, am I the only one who prays like this? Um, or are there other witnesses who, if you're praying for yourself or for other people, this is a call for prayer, for settlement, yeah, in, <laughs> settlement in finances, settlement in career. But Paul says, I didn't stop praying for you. And the core of my burden is that <laughs> I want you um, is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So this is the crux of his desire for all the churches. Paul is not so concerned about their individual needs as much as, of course, he's concerned, but he's not as concerned about it as he is for their need to know God. Because if they get every physical thing and they miss out on knowing God, then the riches that were made available were all in vain, right? Because like we've seen in Revelation, it's possible for you to be rich on earth and miserable and poor and wretched and naked in heaven, right? And that is not the desire of Paul for, 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 for anyone that he's writing to. And so he wants them to know God. This is the highest pursuit that the person can give himself to. There is no trophy, there is no medal, that a person can win in life that can compare to the surpassing worth of knowing God, right? This is what Jesus said the meaning of life is in John chapter 17. He says, this is eternal life. The reason God gave you that investment is so that you can know him. So in a sense, you, you, there are tough questions in life, right? And by tough questions, I mean tough situations and practically tough questions too, that there's no correct answer to the questions as it were, or there's no easy way out. If you go left, it's not very good. If you go right, it's not very good. If you refuse not to go anywhere, it's still not very good. You know, we all come to such crossroads regularly, especially the older you, you, you grow. But Paul is saying that I want you to take your mind off the questions and I want you to fix it on Jesus. You know, so it's as if he's presenting Christ as the answer to all the questions. What you need is not more money. What you need is to know him. 
What you need is not so much desperately to be healed, but what you need is to know him. Because if you observe in our dealings with God, God is usually not as desperate as we are to solve our problems. He does solve problems, but he's <laughs> you, you discover that it's not his priority because in many ways, the problems are an opportunity to know him, right? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. There's a sense in which learning of Jesus cannot happen until there is a yoke that occasions such a learning. You know, you find yourself in a situation where there is a little bit of delay, for example. And what that situation is supposed to do is that it's supposed to push you into the knowledge of God. And how is this knowledge of God supposed to happen? It says that the eyes of your understanding. So if you read through scripture, you can replace understanding here with your heart. Your, your heart has eyes. And when we say your heart in, in scripture, we're not referring to the part of you that pumps blood. But we're referring to that part of you that, that combines your spiritual anim and soulish faculties, right? So your ability to feel, think, love, and all of these things. It says that this your eyes, this your heart has an eye. And that the proof of your knowledge of God is that your, your eyes will be enlightened. When your eyes are enlightened, you will know what is the hope of his calling. So Paul wants the people he's writing to, to be fully acquainted with the hope that they've been called into. And the question for us is, what's going to happen when you're not acquainted with the hope of your calling? What's going to happen? That's the first question. Second question is, what's going to happen when you're not acquainted with the riches that were made available for the prosecution of that calling? Why is it important that you have a grasp of the hope of your calling. Sammy? Okay, yeah. Um, let me start from the riches part. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the, if, I, if you are to give an example, you know, in a parallel of human experience, if you are not aware of the resources at your disposal, uh, the calling would be it would either be aborted or it will suffer setbacks. Mm -hmm. It will not get to the maximum potential that is expected. So imagine if uh, you are you were you were given a, a project to manage and uh, the the pocket of the project is uh, say two million dollars and you are not aware, you know of that $2 million, or you don't know how to, you are aware, but you don't know how to access it. The project will be dead on arrival. Mm -hmm. or even if it is, even if you manage to, you know, to implement it, it will not get to the quality, you know, the, 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 the level you wanted it to get to. Mm -hmm. And then for the area of a calling, if we do not know what that calling is, or what the hope of the calling is, then that is even a greater um, calamity. You know, it's, it means that you don't even know what the original plan is. You know, mm -hmm. you know, just like saying you you are you want to travel, but you don't know where your destination is. Mm -hmm. That's my own perception of it. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, so if you don't know the hope of your calling, you are not going to hit the mark of your calling, right? 
your, your life is not going to achieve the purpose of your calling. And if we understand the New Testament correctly, there is judgment for that kind of existence, right? But also, it's possible that you're going to abuse the riches that were made available for the calling, right? Because it's possible that you can discover that, wait a second, the Holy Ghost in me, if I speak in tongues, can actually solve all my problems. And then I use the Holy Spirit as a serial problem solver all through my life. And I don't know the... I don't know the reason why such an investment was made available. It's likely that I'm going to abuse the investment, right? If I don't know the hope of my calling, it's likely that I'm going to become discouraged on the path of the calling. So many things can go wrong because I do not know the hope of my calling, right? And like you said, if I don't know the riches that are made available for that calling, there is no hope that I will fulfill the calling. In fact, like you said, there's a, there's a very strong possibility that the calling will fail at some point. It's important for us when we read these letters to discover that this church doesn't exist anymore. And in fact, it's not even that it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist. It didn't exist maybe even 1,000 years ago. When we go to Revelation, we see Jesus warning this church, right, about certain things that have crept into the church that were threatening its very existence. And Jesus was saying that, I'm coming and I'm and there's a possibility that I will remove your candlestick from its place. You know, all of that is the result of not knowing the hope of his calling and not knowing the riches that were made available for that calling. As we're going to see subsequently, if you don't know the riches also of the calling, it's possible that Satan can make a mockery out of your life, right? He can have a field day in your space. He can convince you that you are weak and you and you take it as your identity and you do not, you never step into strength and power he can convince you to live with certain anomalies long enough in your life but in verse 19 paul says that i want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power he exhausted all the greek words because the greek is a much richer language than the english right so in english power is power at the very best, we have authority that kind of differentiates both. But here, Paul exhausts the five major, major words that you have for power in the Greek. He says, the exceeding greatness of his power. So one word for power is used here. Another word for power is used. Then we see the working of his mighty <laughs> power. So he's trying to tell you that there is an overflowing supply of strength in God. And that overflowing supply is available to you through the initial investment. Because the, this second word power, the greatness of his power is the dunamis. The dunamis is the latent investment of the spirit in you. So the greatness of that power, <laughs> you don't know how great it can be until you lay demand on it, right? One thing I want to pop, pop in here very quickly before we jump to the final verses of this chapter is that he says that, first of all, it is his calling, right? It is God's calling. Paul wants us to know God's calling. And then he, he talks about the riches of the glory of his inheritance. So the inheritance here is not our inheritance, actually. Inheritance here is God's inheritance. So if you remember in verse 3, Paul says that God is blessed. He's looking from a vista and he says, when I look upon the face of the earth, God has a people 
with whom he has blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. These people are his inheritance. The same way Israel in the Old Testament was, was described in Deuteronomy 32 as the Lord's portion. You are the Lord's portion. You are the Lord's inheritance. God has hope because of your life. God has hope because of my life. God has hope because of the school of prayer. He has hope because of the Bible study group. He has hope because of the church. We are his inheritance. He has invested so much riches in our destinies that, that he's blessed because of us, right? So it is his calling and it is his inheritance. And then in, from verse 20 to verse 23, he tells us of the capacity of this power and reveals to us the first metaphor by which we can understand the church. Goda, can you read verse 20 to 23? Okay, 20 to 23. Which he walked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all the things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Thank you. So in this final verse, Paul puts it all together. He's saying that there is a purpose. And the core of my prayer for you is not that God will solve all your problems. I mean, I pray that he will solve your problems. But the core of my prayer is that, is that you will know him. He will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, right? And that as you know God, you're going to lay hold of the reason why he called you and included you in the community and in the age in which he included you in. And as you do that, you also lay hold of the power that it takes to execute that calling. It takes power <laughs> to execute the calling of oneness. If you want to remain in a relationship, for example, as beautiful as the relationship is when it started, if you're going to continue in it, it takes power. If you're going to exit, because everything around you would want to manipulate the relationship to break it off before God's time, but it takes power to stay in it. I'm just using that as an example to hint to us that everything that is in the will of God for our lives is going to require power to maintain. And he's, he's giving us the portfolio of this power because in verse 19, he has described the extent of this power with several words. And he says, there were two things God achieved with this power. First of all, he raised Christ from the dead. You see, in the Old Testament, the biggest accomplishment of God for which everyone worshipped him in the Old Testament was his creation. Creation was the highest reason to worship God in the Old Testament because creation, in a sense, was the highest expression of the power of God, even though um, Israel experienced some kind of redemption through Israel. Um, um, from Egypt. But what made those acts of redemption fantastic was that it was clear that there was one who had the ability to bend the course of creation in order to, to fulfill his purpose for a people. But in the new covenant, what God is known for is the resurrection of Jesus. That's our hope that we too will rise again. And the proof that this is true is that, is that someone can be dead in sins, like we're going to see in chapter 2, and then the spirit of promise can, can come into him and quicken him and make him alive. That's the highest proof that he's got. He raised Christ from the dead. The power that we, you and I have inside of us 
it raised Christ from the dead. Not only did it raise him from the dead, it seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Now, is this verses that reveal to you that Paul wrote, Paul didn't write this letter from earth, obviously, because there's no investigative instruments that you can use to understand the spiritual architecture that he's laying out for us here. But saying that it was an act of power for God to position Christ at the summit of the invisible creation, far above principality and power and mind and dominion and every name that is named. In fact, from where Paul was standing, God gave him the privilege to see not only this age, but the age that is to come. And he saw that Christ had preeminence overall. So if you think about it, right, when God initiated in himself this project of making a visible creation that was supposed to reflect the invisible realm, um, and then he envisioned you and I as the creatures that will bring him pleasure, that will give him earthly permission to have a home in the earthly realm. His intention was that the bridge, the administrator between the two realms would be his son, Jesus Christ. That was his intention. He walked it out before time began and then began to walk it into time itself. And Paul was standing on a vista where he could see eternity past, eternity present and future. And he saw that even in the age to come, the throne of Christ is far above principality and power. And what this implicitly means is that in your, in your pursuit of the high calling, in the hope of, of the calling of God, maybe you have seen the riches of the cross and you want to appropriate those riches in your life, it's possible that you come face to face with principality and power and mind and dominion. But it's important, it's even more important to realize that within you, within the church, there is a power that operates from a higher place in the universe than any negative supernatural power can operate from. Verse 22 says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over the church, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. So the first metaphor that Paul uses to describe what God is building is a body. The body is supposed to give expression to the desires of the head. And so when we come together to pray, it is a complete waste of our time and God's time. Most of the time when we come to such a gathering with long prayer lists that we didn't consult God about, and we make three, four, five hours of prayer about praying our greed to God, praying our desperation to God, right? It's not a wrong thing to do. It's just, <laughs> it's just a waste of opportunity, right? Because when, they, when the church gathers under its head, the highest expression of such a gathering is that it's supposed, to, it's supposed to discern the will, the mind, the purpose, the agenda of the head and execute it. That's how the kingdom of God, friends, is going to rest upon the face of the earth. That the head, the, the administrator of the purposes of God can think up a plan, can think up an idea. And then upon the face of the earth, he can have a body a people, willing vessels, willing instruments that can execute on that plan. It is in such a body that God intends that the fullness of himself will dwell. 
So what God is building is a body. We're out of time. We don't have time to, to look at the intricacies of a body. But, but there are certain principles, right, that we see in a body. We've looked at headship very briefly, for example. Everything flows from the head. When we come, we must seek the perspective of the head. As much as we have our prayer points and everything else, the, the, the secret to our own blessing and breakthrough is in alignment with the head. But there's also the principle of interdependence, right? That's why Paul told them about the inheritance that has been prepared for you. Because in the context of a body, each person must, must locate their unique position in, in the body, their unique identity in the body, what they offer to the body. Our wiring indicates our difference and our difference is supposed to be our strength. But as long as we keep brushing over each other, trying, trying to own the same space, own the same goal. Do you know that even today, if you, if you start a ministry, even today, you know, we have ministries that have millions of people attending them. But if you start a ministry even today, and that ministry is from God, there are people that God has specifically prepared to be reached by that specific ministry if you start it today or tomorrow, because there is a certain role for each person in the body. And Paul's prayer for, for the Ephesians and for us is that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened so that you can know your place in the divine agenda, so that you can know the riches that he made available for your place, so that you can know the economy of power, and so that you can begin to wield the economy of that power, so that you can begin to appreciate the principle, the idea of the body, and so that we, through corporate alignment and corporate stature, can push back on the opposition of the enemy in our lives, in our families, and in our territories. Okay, so this is where Paul closes it in chapter one. It took us a bit of time to get through it, but thank God that we did. Um, before we pray, any thoughts or any final thoughts or questions perhaps, and then we pray and close. Okay.